Okay, so welcome back, everyone. This is the Ordinary Courage podcast, um, and with your host, uh, Venetia Breald. And in the studio today, uh, I have Constable Stacy McKinnon uh, with us. Stacy um, is with the Calgary Police here and she's been a member with the police for how long now in my 10th year now in your 10th year wow okay so we're um we're just (laughs) we're gonna just dive right in like we always do always do (laughs) yeah and so i i i wanted to preface this with um with just uh you're you're um like you're you're like my sister and uh like literally absolutely yeah you're like my sister and your family to mm-hmm. me your family is family to me mm-hmm. um and and but we met and this all started <laughs> um a little bit of you could say unusual circumstances. I was thinking about this as I was driving here this morning, and you know, I was thinking about because you and I met because you're a cop, mm-hmm. and at the time, I had a daughter, Eden, on the street, addicted to heroin and fentanyl. Right, like just it was ugly, and I was thinking this morning as I was driving here, and I was like, you and I never would have met if not for that time, like for, and I was just thinking how incredible is that? Like sometimes some of the the most ugly, the worst things that we go through can have, like there, there are like incredible things can happen in the midst of the worst. You know what I mean? Like you and I never would have met if not for that crack house. Mm-hmm. Of course, I think from my own experience as well, some of the most amazing things in my life have come from when I was the most broken. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, me too. Yeah, me too. And so I, I kind of wanted to start there. I just, but I wanted, I just wanted to, yeah, preface it with who you are and just what you mean to me and our family today, right? Um, but when you and I met, we, it was, and you actually know this story better than I do <laughs> because it was fairly traumatizing for me. And I, I actually, even when I listen to you tell this story, I'm like, wow, I, I, I forgot about that. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. And so, but you and I met because uh, of another, I had called yet again into the police uh, to try to, get my daughter um, off the street, out of harm's way. Like just, it was sort of the same old story for me. And so let's, I want, let's just kind of pick it up there. And, and uh, the night that we met, we all met at that flop house, well-known crack house. Like, so. Yeah. So um, I actually wasn't even one of the first officers on the call. Um, You had obtained yet another chat order to get uh, Eden into uh, recovery and 
the officers that initially responded, because you did your own investigative work and located her uh, for us, and you just needed help um, basically doing a door knock and apprehending mm-hmm. Eden to get her into the treatment center. Yeah, I was told I wasn't allowed to go in there by myself. Yeah, that's that's good advice. <laughs> it's usually the advice we would give. <laughs> so the officers that uh, initially attended, they were meeting quite a bit of resistance uh, at the door by the uh, homeowners who were hanging out with Eddie and two of her uh, girlfriends friends who were all around, I think, 16, um, all underage. Uh, the homeowners were not underage. And um, they didn't want to, one, let the girls leave. The girls didn't obviously want to leave because they were in the basement using at the time. And they didn't want, obviously, police in the residence because it's full of drugs and uh, whatever else. So um, backup was asked for and the call I remember was going on for quite some time because the officers that initially responded were trying their best to negotiate. Listen, we don't care what's in your house. We just care about the safety of these girls. Like they need to come out. We have an order to apprehend one of them. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I was initially on another call at the time and then wrapped that up with my partner. And then when backup was assist or requested, uh, we head that way. Once we got out, it wasn't too much longer that finally um, the initial officers on scene were able to negotiate with the homeowners that uh, the girls were going to come out. So um, I was just kind of standing in, in the back, uh, just waiting in case things went sideways or whatever. Well, when Eddie and her two girls and her two girlfriends ended up coming up right away, like it wasn't the best situation. Uh, the girls were all high. They had just used fentanyl because they knew... The cops mm-hmm. were at the door and they wanted to get their last fix in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember Eddie was, I think, the first one that came out. And there was a lot of talk back and forth between the homeowners and the first responding officers. And things were getting ugly, right? Um, Eddie came out and right away she was she was lipping the officers. And I was like, that one right there. She's mine. <laughs> so um, I kind of yelled out at her and said, like, get over here. And I kind of took, took custody of her, essentially, for lack of a better term, and um, just started talking with her and right away set the tone where I'm very much an officer that respect goes both ways. So I understand this isn't how you want your evening to go, but that's how it's going to go. And it can go one of two ways. So that's going to be on you of how cooperative you want to be. Mm-hmm. Um so we just started talking and initially uh, EMS was obviously called because of the use of fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Um, her two friends were getting checked out and it took quite a while. So I, th- I think I spent at least 45 minutes or so uh, with Eddie mm-hmm. and we were just standing more or less on the curb. Um, I think you were speaking with the other officers, officers that were actually taking primary on the file and updating them with whatever information they needed for the report. So. In that time, it gave me the opportunity to talk to to Eden and just get to know her a little bit. And as irony would have it, a little bit of the backstory, um, I used to live in the community that you live in, and you were part of that community Facebook social media group, and you were quite open about Eden's journey and your journey through recovery and her relapsing and all of that. So Mm -hmm. um, it was actually that morning of my shift, I was eating breakfast before going to work and I was just scrolling social media and read 
your article or post that you put on about Eddie going AWOL again and running away and not knowing where she was and all this kind of grief that you were holding on to. And it just kind of st- it struck me and it kind of sat with me for a while. And then as fate would have it. Oh, I See, I totally forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Fate would have it that, that evening. Um, uh, it was actually, I think, a night shift. So yeah, it was only a few hours into my shift that now I'm standing on this curb looking at this child that I was just reading about and I felt I almost kind of knew her already mm-hmm. because of that. So I knew how grief struck in you were and I'm very close with my mom and I could I can't even imagine at the time I wasn't a mom. So just what you were going through and in talking with her I got to that angle of speaking about her family and she shared with me that yeah she is really close with you uh her mom and her family and um but at the end of the day it just didn't matter Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that for me I I couldn't wrap my mind around that Mm -hmm. um and then with the fentanyl use I asked her like aren't you like you know about fentanyl right like Mm -hmm. aren't you scared if like can kill you it's like playing Russian roulette I remember Mm -hmm. telling her that and her response was uh, like I was blown away by it essentially that she didn't care she needed to use this drug and if it ended up taking her life that was God's will essentially and at 16 years old I just remember standing there dumbfounded like and I pointedly asked her after she said that I said do you want to die and she said, no, but if it happens, it happens. And that just shook me to the core. Like, mm-hmm. how is this bright, promising young woman so entrenched in something? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, I've seen addiction. I've seen homelessness. I've seen all of it through through my career and most of my career being on frontline patrol. Mm-hmm. Um, but just having that conversation with her, it really struck me like how wrapped up she was in this. Mm -hmm. Um, So in speaking with her, um, just getting to know her a little bit, uh, it was her time then to go get checked out and she was cleared by medics. And then she ended up going with the primary officers who I think they ended up doing the transport to the the center that they were able to locate for a peach head. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, that was essentially the end of my involvement with her. for whatever reason, something about her just stuck with me. Um, and that area that we met was well known to us. Mm-hmm. It was one of our problematic areas in the district. We did regular patrols. Um, me too. Yeah, I, bet. <laughs> I did regular <laughs> patrols, too. and and I did uh, as well. Probably for the same reason, and just looking for Eddie after that, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I made a point that when there was some downtime, didn't matter the time of day, day shift, night shift, I would patrol that area, and I was keeping an eye out for her. I wanted to see if she was still out there, or if she made it into recovery, if mm-hmm. this was the time that she finally mm-hmm. did it, or mm-hmm. if she was still out there, then. Did she need some food? Did she just want to have a conversation? Um, so I remember uh, there were several months that passed, and there was one day that I actually 
saw her and uh, I was on my own. I think it was a day shift and she was walking through some, some yards in that area. And so I whipped around the corner and I can see she's checking her shoulder like, oh, there's the cops. I want nothing to do with them. <laughs> and I rolled up and a little part of me almost felt like she might remember me. But mm-hmm. of course, like that was naive of me. <laughs> but um, I shared with her that I remembered her and mm-hmm. called her by name. And I think I freaked her out a little bit. And <laughs> <laughs> um but just wanted to chat with her, see how she was doing. Uh, another part of me, too, was super sad to see her, that she was back out in, in that area, and I knew what that meant. And mm-hmm. um, asked her if she needed a ride, um, if she needed some food, but uh, she wanted nothing to do with the cops at that point. I, that's shocking. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> so after a, a brief interaction, she was on her way, and that was the last that I'd seen her. Um, despite patrolling that area quite often. And then it was probably, so that night that we first met was December 5th, 2015. And it was... Holy Stace, wow. Yeah. And then it was, I think the next spring, maybe summer, that I ran into her again. And then I think it was August 2017 Mm -hmm. that... uh, Jill Croteau did the global news article on your guys's journey and again just one of those things where normally when my husband and I eat dinner we we don't have the tv on mm-hmm. um but I had had it on the news went upstairs and and left the news on while we were eating and I could kind of hear it in the background and while we were eating I remember just hearing the article that was going on and I said that sounds a little bit familiar so I interrupted our dinner and ran down and rewound the TV and sure enough this was the article showing that Eddie was at that point I think eight months sober she had just ran a triathlon while training with the Terminator Foundation and she found recovery and I was so overcome with joy for your entire family and so proud of her uh, that she finally arrived in this recovery and she looked so healthy Mm -hmm. um because I always just felt like she has a purpose and she just hasn't made it there yet. And I hope she does before fentanyl takes her. Um, so it was, yeah, I just remember being completely overwhelmed with joy, seeing that she had found recovery. Um, and again, to take a step back and a little more of the backstory in that time, Um, My mom had relocated, retired from BC, moved out here, and at that point I had left the community that we both lived in at the time, Mm -hmm. and ironically, literally, we lived a block away from each other. Yeah, I know, which is crazy. (laughs) And uh, so my parents, um, they stayed in my house in that community, and and, uh, at that time I was uh, living with my now husband and the other side of the city. And so my mom then became a part of this community group on Facebook and saw your story and that you're always out running and sharing, you were updating all the time about Eddie and how she was doing at that point. And um, my mom, for whatever reason, felt connected to you again, as fate would have it. And 
Uh, I think one day you'd probably be able to tell the story a little bit better, but she totally freaked you out because <laughs> she saw you running one day and yeah. thought that must be that Venetia lady. I have to meet her. Yeah. So she whipped around her car and totally. kind of chased you down she and <laughs> jumped out and gave you a big hug. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know if, I think you guys went for coffee <clears throat> or something after that, maybe after that. Yeah, we yeah. did. Yeah. So my mom was sharing this with me. I, and because of my work um I do have to keep things confidential I do hold on to a lot Mm -hmm. and um there's a lot of things that I can't even share with my husband um Mm -hmm. and that's just the nature of Mm -hmm. what we do so uh, my mom had no knowledge about my interaction or my knowledge of you and Eddie and um so she was telling me one day about this this lady and her daughter and how she found recovery and all these different things and I'm like "Uh uh-huh yeah oh yeah that's that's fantastic just playing dumb yeah and uh it was after all of that and seeing that news article um that I reached out to my mom and was like are you still in contact with that lady that you told me about and um she said that she followed you kind of on social media and whatnot I think at that point you might have been official as Facebook friends even (laughs) and uh So at that point, that was the first time that I shared with her without going into details, obviously, but shared that I had met you guys previously on a call at work a couple years prior. And um, in seeing that Eddie had found recovery, I really Mm -hmm. wanted to just reach out to her and just share with her how proud I was of her. Mm -hmm. Um, And as it would have it, the night that we met back in 2015, I was an officer coach and at a recruit constable with me at the time. And so he also had the opportunity to meet Eden and interact with her. And, mm-hmm. um, she struck him, I think just as much as I was struck by her as well. She seems to have that effect on people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she does. And, uh, so after he was signed off his, uh, training, he became my full-time permanent partner at work. So I was now partners with him in 2017. And so I asked him, I was like, Hey, do you remember Eden? And he was like, yeah, of course I remember her. And so I shared with him the global news article and we were both just so happy for her. And it's, I think for us too, we hung on to that glimmer of hope because we constantly see just people in the trenches and the despair and it's the same people. And as sad as it is, there's so many times where officers are meeting the same individual and who's overdosing and we've given them multiple doses of Narcan over weeks and months. Mm-hmm. Um, so to see somebody come through it who was mm-hmm. right in the trenches yeah. was pretty phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I reached out. So after I asked my partner if if he remembered and he did and I was like it'd be really cool to be able to meet up with her and just tell her like how proud we are and how how rare this is Mm -hmm. and to keep going Mm -hmm. so I didn't uh I didn't have your contact information anymore and obviously it wasn't the time or place to be looking up any information Mm because I wasn't directly involved in a call so I used my mom to go through her and uh had her reach out Yeah. yeah so Um, it was about a week or two later that I heard back that you guys would be open to it. And I think somewhere in there, we exchanged phone numbers. I Mm -hmm. gave you my work number Mm -hmm. and we arranged a date and time. And so, uh, it was outside of our district of where you guys were living. So I got approval from our Sergeant and we 
we went and just got a couple little things and uh, showed up at your doorstep. And I remember knocking on the door and there was no answer. And I was like, oh no, I wonder if they, they changed their mind. And <laughs> knocked again and nothing and nothing. And I was like, oh, well, I guess we can, maybe they changed their mind or it is what it is. It, it's kind of, again, one of those things. And I think we were almost about to turn around and finally Eddie came running down the stairs and opened the door and you hadn't been home yet. Correct. Yeah. So I don't know if she was a little bit nervous to yeah, to yeah. talk with us without you there and yeah. whatever the case was, but uh, you came screeching up not long after. And, <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we just had a really nice visit on the, the doorstep and um, I was really happy after that. Um, I got a picture with, with mm-hmm. Eden and um, I carried that in my locker. Uh, and once I got an office, I, I have that picture of us in our, in my office and, um, it's just a a reminder of like what compassion can, can do and, and just the strength, uh, the pillar of strength that Eddie was and the inspiration she was. Um, so yeah, after that uh, meeting, you had mentioned that you'd reached out to the police several times. I think you even mentioned that you tried to get a hold of the chief directly. Yes. <laughs> Which now doesn't surprise me that I know you. <laughs> and uh, you wanted police presence at your annual ter- Terminator runs. And I think yeah. at that point, it was the second annual run that was coming up <clears throat> two weeks later. It was the third. The third. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so you asked, would you guys be able to come? And I yeah. said, well... I looked at our schedule and we were working that Sunday and I was like, I can't see it being an issue. Obviously it's dependent on how busy we are, mm-hmm. but, uh, I got approval from my sergeant and my partner and I were, were both able to make it that day. And that was the first, mm-hmm. first run that uh, we attended and you had to say a few words. And, um, from then I think I was just, I was hooked, uh, on what you're doing and in interacting, not only with you guys there and getting to chat with Eden again, but talking with all the other athletes that you're literally saving the lives of in the work that you're doing with Terminator and their families. And there was even uh, a son of a member uh, of our service that was there in training Mm -hmm. through sobriety with Terminator and um, just how everybody is so connected. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was kind of how I came to be involved and it was at that run that in in speaking with Eden again that I gave her my business card and wrote my cell phone my work cell phone number on it and said if you ever need anything doesn't matter day or night you like you you call if you Mm -hmm. for whatever reason you can't call your mom you can call me and Mm -hmm. now thinking back she's probably like yeah as if if I can't call my mom I'm not going to call some cop (laughs) (laughs) right but um she did end up reaching out and uh we started texting and at the time she was giving back to her community and working as a relief worker I believe is what her kind of role was at in from the cold and Mm -hmm. um so she was doing shift work as well and working night Mm -hmm. so I started just bringing her coffees and on her break and we'd, we'd chat and, um, catch up. And that's kind of how our relationship slowly started to build. And, um, not only of her learning to trust me, but also me learning to trust her. And then for me as well, also making sure I still kind of had those boundaries because Mm -hmm. of what I do. It wasn't just a personal connection that I felt with her, but I also had to be very cognizant of, what I represent professionally that, Mm -hmm. 
yeah, it's kind of a fine line. Totally. So, um, yeah, um, I think it was a couple months that we'd catch up here and there. I'd bring her coffees on her night shifts and just got to know her a little bit, hear her story and like Mm -hmm. what she wants to do and some of her goals and dreams. And, and then, uh, then from there we started doing breakfast dates on my days off and I'd take her to hot yoga and just get Mm -hmm. her into kind of a different sense of community and provide that support for her and thankfully it did come into a relationship where she could open up and share things with Mm -hmm. me Mm -hmm. that she wasn't comfortable sharing with mom or Mm -hmm. other Mm -hmm. people and just to have that other outlet left and um yeah so that's kind of that was yeah five years ago that it all began that's yeah it's crazy it's it's emotional for me just even you know listening and just remembering back and it's such a miracle it was definitely meant to be yeah and then just everything that's has since you know Mm -hmm. come of all of this and I um so you and I had talked the other day about just the the impact, just the impact that this has had um, on your life and for you personally and professionally, mm-hmm. um, because you've like like you mentioned you've I mean you've been a police officer for just over a decade, so that's a lot of you've seen a lot Mm -hmm. in that time and so can you just um share with us a little bit about how this how this changed some things for you in your life yeah both personally and professionally like yeah for sure so when I had met Eden um I was in about my fifth year of policing and frontline so that's the pointy end of the stick you're going to anything and everything that uh, is called for service and uh, typically people don't call when they're having a good day Um, Mm -hmm. you're seeing tragedy and trauma after trauma Um, and then with fentanyl and the rise of it on the street and Mm -hmm. the opioid crisis and everything else that was going on the amount of overdoses um, like even as a service we had to adapt and we were personally carrying every one of us uh narcan and using it often uh bringing people back to life uh sometimes as i mentioned the same people bringing them back to life Mm -hmm. uh so it is part of i suppose the police culture and really any first responder i think and um be it medics firefighters ER doctors, nurses, Mm -hmm. when you're constantly seeing trauma and the worst of humanity, essentially, uh, you turn to black humor, whether it's appropriate or not, uh, it becomes a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. Um, And you become numb to a lot of what you see, just I think for the self-preservation of Mm -hmm. your mental health, uh, you have to turn certain things off within yourself when you put on the uniform mm-hmm. um, and a lot of times it does come home with you uh, we have a great support and thankfully the stigma around mental health and first responders is mm-hmm. uh, not what it used to be mm-hmm. and um, I've used our 
utilized our psych services numerous times, uh, even if it's just for an annual checkup to make sure everything's yeah. still ticking how it should. Yeah, even totally. though I feel fine, um, there's a lot that's buried and you suppress that you yeah. don't realize because it's just the way you've been doing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in that and seeing everything that we do, it, it often, to speak for myself personally, I had become cold in a sense where I think I've always been a fairly compassionate person. That's just kind of who I am. But as a means to cope with constantly seeing the same individuals overdosing and not getting it, um, me not getting it, mm-hmm. uh, not really understanding the depth of the disease itself, it was my mentality, just another junkie, just mm-hmm. another, just another, just another. and just how ignorant that was of me on one hand but then the other just trying to give myself grace of that was the way I coped Mm -hmm. and I didn't mistreat anybody when I was interacting with them Mm -hmm. but I was probably more dismissive than I should have been Mm -hmm. I was there fix the problem Mm -hmm. move on to the next Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and then after my interaction and everything that happened with Eden, uh, you've touched on it with a few of your episodes, I think now, and just having that now lived experience Mm -hmm. and I could relate firsthand now. So seeing that 16 year old on the corner or at the Tim Hortons or at the McDonald's, that was somebody's Eden now. So that totally is kind of what flipped the switch um, and gave me back my compassion uh, on a whole nother level that I didn't even have previously. And yeah. that, that empathy uh, for these individuals, that somebody's Eden, that's not just another. Um, and then for me too, it was to start paying more attention and being more mindful of who these people are when I meet them not what they are. Mm-hmm. So for me, it totally changed, as you say, not just professionally, but personally too. And who am I to judge? Um, and taking that look within where that's not an appropriate way for me to, to cope with these calls. And if I'm having to be dismissive to another human for me to cope and move on to the next... Well, then I need to go get my, my brain checked out again and have a conversation. And I did. Um, and just learning how to recompartmentalize what I need to, um, to be who I would want showing up for Eden and treating everybody that I meet the same. Just because I know Eden, she shouldn't get special treatment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, and again, just that's really, I think, what hit home for me is um, that somebody's eaten. Yeah. And that's how I started approaching every individual that I met. Uh, and just whether it was spending 10 extra minutes with them to hear how their day was, um, that's what I started to do. Oh, it's, 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 uh, I didn't know that this was going to be this emotional for me. Um, 
this is it's powerful even what you're saying like you know on just the just on a a bigger scale like as a police officer you know like coming from that profession from those front lines and to you know just the message that you now carry you know the message that you can now share with your fellow officers Mm -hmm. with your community with your just every just your circle and then just the ripple effect of this now that's this is happening you know what I mean there there has been a ripple effect here from this because Mm -hmm. honestly I I worked in addiction and mental health before this happened with Eden too and going through this with her changed everything for me too it just took it to a whole new level you know it's uh it's powerful like just the revelation and the awareness the level of understanding that you now bring to the table you know as a member of the CPS, it's uh, incredibly valuable, I think, even to us continuing to move forward um, as a society and as a community, as a city, as a country, you know what I mean? Because we, the stigma, the stigma is real, mm-hmm. the shame is real, you know, and this is one of the ways that we can just change change that environment change the landscape and and the conversation and the way that we just the, our verbiage you know yeah. um so what what uh, what else and i like i already know the answers to all these <laughs> questions but um what else did this do for you when you started to reflect on um just addiction and just all do you know where I'm going with this sister? yeah as yeah. I think Carissa put it you're leading me yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah so it was uh, it was a couple of months I think after that run uh, that first run that I attended mm-hmm. and um, Eden had mentioned that she was asked to speak as a keynote for the Headstrong uh, Mental Health Commission of Canada, I think is what yeah. is, correct me yeah. if I'm wrong, um, to a bunch of high school students it, in Lethbridge. Her and another athlete with Terminator were mm-hmm. welcomed down there. And at that point, they, they didn't have a ride to get down to Lethbridge, so she wasn't sure if she was going to be able to commit to it. Um, you were tied up. You weren't able to take her. Um, they were looking at maybe taking the bus down. And so I was supposed to be on a course that day at work. Um, I talked to my sergeant and ended up taking myself off the course, got wait listed for the next course when it was going to come up, and then took uh, a holiday day to take the day off and told them I could take them. Um, and I just felt it was important that there was this was kind of bigger if like she's going to go speak and share her story firsthand to individuals and our youth that can benefit from this it Mm -hmm. needed to happen Mm -hmm. um and in seeing her uncertain if she was going to do it or not I needed to make sure it was going to happen so 
um, in what I was expecting is I was going to drive them down, drop them off. I brought a book. I was going to go find a park and, and hang out for the day and then pick them up when they were done and drive them back. And, uh, when I got there, the lady that was organizing the whole event with Headstrong, uh, she was like, Oh, absolutely not. You're staying. And I was like, okay, (laughs) I guess I'm staying. And I remember Eden sharing with me that if it just, and you speak about the vulnerability hangover uh, in several of your episodes and and how she felt that. And each time that she spoke to people or shared her story, and I'd heard her story at this point numerous different times. Um, she did a presentation at ARC, uh, which is one of the centers that she received treatment. And mm-hmm. um, she wrote a letter and uh, she shared that with me. And so I'd heard what she's gone through several times and... So I was very confident that, yeah, you're, you're going to speak to an audience and you, you will change something for at least one person Mm -hmm. because that's what she was kind of hoping for and had prayed about that. If God can use her just to speak to one person in that room, it would be worth it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I assured her like, absolutely. Somebody there needs to hear what you have to say. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was a really good day and uh, super proud just to see her share her story and be so vulnerable. And um, there was, after their talks, uh, they went around and did breakout sessions. And so her and Sam had gone around to the mm-hmm. different tables and interacted with the, the students there and and just watching her and thinking back to this kid that I met on the street corner and like it didn't even seem like the same person mm-hmm. and to now watch her it, it was a little bit surreal mm-hmm. um and after we left the event uh it wasn't until the drive home that it really hit me and something from whatever she said that day it just clicked. And as I said, I, I heard her story numerous times, but for whatever reason, I was that one in the room. I'm sure there were many others, but she had spoken to me and and it was just in sharing her story about addiction and her first experience getting drunk as a youth and, um, seeing adults drinking heavily and getting Mm -hmm. drunk and the glorification of alcohol and, Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, the first time I got drunk, I was 13 as well. And uh, I was at a wedding reception and all of us kids snuck like two liter bottles of the BC grower coolers and (laughs) the worst feeling the next morning. (laughs) But when you're, all these kids are Mm -hmm. drinking in the front yard Mm -hmm. or the adults are in the backyard, um, it was the cool thing to do. It's glorified. It's, um, and then that feeling that you get when you are, drunk and as a youth and your brain's not even developed yet you start hanging on to those things and Mm -hmm. it becomes a very slippery soap and it can for many people and uh, so I had that even relatability with her and I'm sure so many other people do have a similar story of as a youth the first time they got drunk Mm -hmm. uh, sneaking their parents alcohol or whatever the case Mm is Mm -hmm. and again just around adults as a youth and watching them abuse alcohol uh it's not just about having a social drink necessarily but um 
going to the point of being inebriated. Mm-hmm. And that really made me kind of sit and reflect of, we have a lot of good friends who have children that are coming up to that age where we go camping with them. We, we host a lot of get togethers, as you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) and there's alcohol Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's fine on one hand, if you're being responsible about it. But what I realized is I wasn't being responsible about it. Um, I didn't feel like I ever fit in the box of being an addict or, uh, having even necessarily a drinking problem, but I did. And because I didn't fit in that label of being an addict, I didn't think that I had a problem. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until that day that I felt kind of overcome. And I remember just being really overwhelmed. It hit me so hard. Um, Even trying to share and talk with my husband about it, Mm -hmm. who I share everything with, uh, I couldn't do it without even getting emotional. It hit me so hard. So... I had realized that I was abusing alcohol and I had my entire life. Wow. I was that person that would drink to get drunk every time I drank, Mm -hmm. unless I had to drive. Mm -hmm. And then I would have one or two, I would go to wherever I needed to be, if it was home or whatever the case is for that evening, night. Mm -hmm. And then I would drink some more. Mm -hmm. So that's an issue. Mm -hmm. That's not normal. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was the person at the party that some people would maybe coin the life of the party. And, um, I would be pouring heavy drinks for everybody. I would be bringing everybody the shots because I wanted to take the shots Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to be the only inebriated one in the room making a fool of myself. So if I get everybody else drunk with me, then Mm -hmm. I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. And I never realized what I was doing until Mm -hmm after this, this day that I was kind of hit and the months that came after of just that self-reflection of, holy shit, like I, this is not okay. Mm -hmm. I need to make changes. Mm -hmm. It's in my face now and I have a choice to make. Um, and for me, it wasn't necessarily even about abstinence. It was just being a responsible human. Mm -hmm. And I care deeply about my my friend's children. So I know they look up to me. I'm not just Auntie Stacy either. I'm Auntie Stacy, the police officer. Mm-hmm. So if they see Auntie Stacy, the police officer drinking the way she's drinking, it mm-hmm. must be okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Holy that space. message in itself yeah. was, uh, I need to, I need to, it was a wake up call and I haven't drank like I used to since, um, like even going to a restaurant, having a glass of wine or a beer, mm-hmm. I was the person that needed to finish the drink. If we're heading out and I still have half a drink, I'm chugging the rest of that drink. And Garrett, my husband, if you're not finishing your drink, I'm going to finish it because that's a waste. <laughs> <laughs> right? I was that person. Yeah, totally. I was totally that person. And that's not normal. Yeah. Um, just even those little things that are actually big things yeah. hit me in the face. And yeah since then I'm quite content leaving a drink at the restaurant Mm -hmm. I had what I wanted and like uh, 
yeah, I didn't realize until then in hearing Eddie's story for like the 10th time that it hit me that um, I couldn't just, I didn't understand people that would have a social drink. Mm -hmm. If you're drinking, the point is to get drunk. Mm -hmm. So why would you just have one or two? You can't get drunk off that. Like literally that was my mentality. And I didn't understand people who would just have a beer. I'm like, why are you just having a beer? You're not even going to get a buzz off that. Yeah. Like how messed up is that? Um, yeah. So it was, I, yeah, it was raw for a long time there. Um, and back to psych services, I went <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I, awesome. I needed to, right. And yeah. I, I knew that this wasn't normal and, um, I needed to make changes because yeah, like I said, it was now in my face and I had a choice to make mm-hmm. and it was easy. Like I said, something clicked for me that day mm-hmm. and yeah, I just haven't looked back. So yeah. Wow. This is pretty big, eh? Yeah, it was it was a game changer for me. Yeah. And I remember after that, I felt really compelled to share with Eden. Like, remember that if there could be one person in that room you spoke to, well, guess what? That was me that you were speaking to. And I'm sure there were many others, but you might not hear from them. And I'm going to make sure you hear it from me. You have changed my life. Um, You, Eden, the recovering addict changed my life for the better and you've quite possibly as you speak of the ripple effect changed Mm -hmm. the lives of the children of our friends and my now chilled child right um i don't get drunk around them um i've been drunk once August of last year. (laughs) And again, in, in that, um, too, looking back, uh, we had just gone through a miscarriage and a lot of people didn't know what we didn't share. We went through IVF and, um, we didn't let anybody know because we didn't want the added pressure. And, and it, it was an event that I went to last summer and right away. And again, in hindsight, after that had happened, just, learning from it because mm-hmm. if you don't learn from it then you'll continue to do it yeah and um i think part of why i drank so much previously as well is just uh as coping mm-hmm. like oh that was a tough shift uh go home i need a drink and just that that saying is so prevalent even in our society like totally I need a stiff drink now or whatever the case is. So yeah. it became habit even for me with work mm-hmm. coming home from patrol at four in the morning, I'd have two or three beer before going to bed. Mm-hmm. And then oftentimes when I drank and my mom can speak to this is I suppress a lot of my feelings mm-hmm. on one hand to some people they'll say, I wear my emotions on my sleeve, mm-hmm. but that's only if, you're in basically Mm -hmm. if I am comfortable enough and open up because a lot of the times I'm just guarded. Um, and so 
to get that release, I would get drunk because then I would talk about my emotions mm-hmm. and I would oftentimes bawl every time I would be an emotional drunk. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure I was fun sometimes, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that was, that was the way I coped. Yeah. And yeah. it was after last summer, the first time that I'd gotten drunk since, um, I think it was in 2017 that that, that conference was and looked back and was like, okay, why did this happen? Why did I feel it necessary to drink to the extent that I drank uh, and was a mess? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was letting out a lot of what I had built up because Mm -hmm. I let myself because I was drunk. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what can I learn from this? Pick myself up and carry on. Yeah, absolutely. So... I, I, um, like, I, obviously I know your story, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But I, I am just kind of, it's, it's really, um, it's, it's, it's incredibly humbling what you're sharing and talking about and, and powerful, like, because I think for a lot of us, you know, we have, you know, we have certain people and certain titles that are just on, they're on, it's like a different playing field. It's a different plateau. Like it's a different level. It's a, you know what I mean? And so for someone in uniform, and you're literally in uniform, (laughs) (laughs) you know, to be this open and honest and frank is like I I'm blown away just sitting here listening to you like because it's not like you and I are just having a Tim Hortons in your car you know what I mean like it's being it's recorded for like it's it's powerful Stace you know and I I I'm just so you know it's it's uh I am actually like I feel blown away to even have this platform right now to get these stories out. Like, I feel like I'm sitting here right now and I know your story, but I'm in awe that this is actually, this is going to go out mm-hmm. and the impact that this is, can have on people, e- even on other people in professional, highly esteemed positions. You know what I mean? Like, because at the end of the day, no matter our title, our position, how much money we have in the bank, how powerful we might think we are, we're all just humans. Absolutely. You know what I mean? We all tick the same way. Our heart beats the same way. We all have a mind. We all have emotions. We all have a spirit. We all have a soul. Like, you know what I mean? We all came into the world the same and we're all going to go out the same. Like, but it's, we're so, we've gotten so good, I think, at hiding to behind, you know what I mean? Whether it's a badge or whether it's a political career or whether it's as a doctor or a nurse or a teacher or, you know, like all of these different things that we're, we, we, 
as a, we just think, oh, they, they wouldn't know, they wouldn't understand, this isn't happening for them because they're a doctor, they're a cop, they're a politician, they're a whatever, you know? Yeah, you must have just literally, as you were speaking, read my mind because that was exactly my thought. Some of us just hide it better. Yeah, yeah, we get well, and then and then even and then I I do believe too. There's that pressure to need to feel like you have it all together because of whatever, right? And then let's be honest, some of this just comes freaking right down to just our egos. Yeah, yeah. you know. And just wanting to be perceived in a certain light too, right? I I'm uh, I this is like I am almost taking this in as we're sitting here, like, and just the the massive message, and I think there's a lot of messages in this episode, like in your story, in what you just shared you know, from having a massive moment of clarity from what society, how we have viewed addicts and alcoholics, like you said it earlier, like it's just another junkie, you know. And for for a life-altering clicking moment you know what I mean that you had from just another junkie Mm -hmm. like holy crap that junkie and I'm using air air quotes Chris's air quotes (laughs) Chris's air quotes Uh, that junkie uh, in lack of a better term saved this police officer's life that junkie is my hero Too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this recovering alcoholic <laughs> is my hero. The lives that you've changed is like I can't even. I wear this uniform and I have a badge, and I feel like I can't even hold a candle to what you're doing at the ground level. Like it's just inspiring I love you (laughs) I love you (laughs) I uh oh man I I just I'm probably just gonna I know I'm kind of just repeating myself but I'm honestly it was the same with having Jordan here the other day in the studio and and uh, I, I am just really, I feel like sitting here right now, being getting to be a part of this story, a part of this conversation, like a part of this going out into the world. I just can't get over how powerful our stories are and how the impact that our stories can have on the human race. Mm -hmm. 
it's astounding to me. You know, and especially coming from a place, and I'm sure you can probably relate to this, that I try, I hid my story for years. I was ashamed of my story. Like, I wanted to be anyone else or tell any other story but my own. And so to now be here and listening to these stories come out into the light, you know, to raise awareness, to smash stigma, to smash shame, you know, for other people to come forward. I can only imagine, and just speaking to your profession, but I can only imagine the other police officers just even in Calgary alone, that are going to be impacted by hearing your story today. Yeah, and on that note even, I'm quite confident to say, and I'm very proud to say, that I know without a doubt I'm one of hundreds in our service Mm -hmm. that have this kind of story. Um, And police our front lines with a similar level of compassion mm-hmm. and empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we even crossed paths with one of them. Totally. And with Kevin. Yes. He was impacted. I totally was thinking about him. He was impacted by Eden as well. He had met Eden at a separate call through the, the years that she mm-hmm. was on the streets or whatever it was. And mm-hmm. um, it wasn't until I think last year or something yeah it we was. were at an event and talking and kind of connected the dots that uh he too was impacted by her yeah. and he got really emotional and that hit me and it hit you oh, yeah. it, it, like, <laughs> floored me I was a mess and just to make that connection and he came out to last year's run yeah. and volunteered and yeah I mean there's so many incredible men and women that I work with absolutely um I just feel fortunate enough that I've had the opportunity under your courage uh, on this platform to be able to share. But uh, I know my story is just one of hundreds. And I think it's, I, I think it was our chief uh, that spoke of um, there can be bad apples in the barrel. Yeah. But it's not necessarily the barrel that's making the apples bad Mm -hmm. so and I I probably butchered that and I apologize if I did (laughs) but just there's you only ever hear about the bad ones yeah right there are so many amazing officers doing incredible things out there Mm -hmm. in our community and social media helps Mm -hmm. share those stories Mm -hmm. um but they are far more common Mm -hmm. Uh, than people realize. Mm -hmm. Yeah, honestly, on that note, like going through what I went through with Eden and just, um, you know, just her time on the street and just that whole thing, I obviously had the, um, I'll say, opportunity Mm -hmm. to have lots of interactions with the police on many occasions. Um, And... I I mean, I could name off police right now, you know what I mean, that uh, 
went above and beyond the call of duty to assist me, to assist my daughter. Like where they like really went way out of, way out of their way, way out of their way to just try to help. You know, I would get calls sometimes, and it wasn't even that I had involved the police, but because um, because I had had so much involvement with the police, and then because of some of the stuff on the news that we had been on the news, and just certain things like that, that there there were a good handful of cops that knew Eden, mm-hmm. and so there were times I would get a call from you know an officer rob is one of those Mm -hmm. that would say hey venetia just reaching out because uh you know i we just picked up your daughter i just want you to know she's safe um she's actually in the back of my car right now and like who who does that yeah you know and this is like and i'm like these calls were worth you couldn't put a price on these Mm -hmm. calls like I lived for a long time day in and day out not knowing if Eden was dead or alive Mm -hmm. literally like I would hear a siren go off in our neighborhood and I would was wonder is it is it for me triggered is that is it my turn to get the call is it my turn to have them show up at my door is today the day and so to get these calls from police just saying we just wanted you to know we seen your daughter just wanted you to know we you know talk to Eden here she is on the phone she just you know and I'd have to be on the phone with her for like 30 seconds or something but it like it meant everything yeah you know and so I I had so yeah so just in in agreeing with you like yes there's some other stories out there but these these stories need to be told too because there's there's you know there's there's bad apples Mm -hmm. everywhere Uh not not just in the police force they're everywhere they're everywhere like let's be real you know they're everywhere and I just, I know for me, like, it was a long haul going through that with Eden, like Mm -hmm. five, six years until she found recovery. And now we're coming up on four Four years. years. January 17th. Yeah. Sister, listen to you. And and then just even this that came out of it, Mm -hmm. such an ugly, dark time. And we've added a family member. Yeah. A whole family. (laughs) A whole family. Not just one. But yeah, and I just... I I feel so blessed to have... Be a part of your family and get to know even the boys and Mm -hmm. Chris and her family. And um, I feel like Chris is like a sister from another mister because (laughs) I I can relate to her on so many levels and even in hearing her podcasts. And I feel like half the time she's talking about me. And wow. just that relatability, right? And um, 
just yeah every I think member of your family has given me something and um ditto sister yeah, yeah. like just that even that first Christmas that Eden was home and I was fortunate enough to I was part of another organization that I volunteered with and to to get them over and be a part of that evening with you guys like yeah I'll like I cherish that like that was awesome yeah me too yeah me too I uh as we wrap up here I I uh is there anything that you would like to say just in closing whatever whatever that is I should have known this was coming because you do this every episode (laughs) (laughs) um no and I, I think just the main thing is I, what I touched on at the conference, even when I spoke uh, at the Terminator conference mm-hmm. last summer, is um, just that respect and the compassion uh, to go both ways. And I mean, it's tough times right now putting on a uniform and being out in public. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of hate in the world right now. And um, I think everybody has a choice where you can be a contributor to that hate and fuel it or uh base things on your own lived experience and mm-hmm. if you've had a negative experience or interaction with an officer uh, i apologize uh, whether it's with cps or any other we mm-hmm. all represent the same um and wearing this uniform we are held to a high standard mm-hmm. and we very well should be mm-hmm. um we have core values for a reason and we should live and police by them uh but at the end of the day, we are also human. And sometimes we see, like I said, the worst in people. And we could be coming from a call that uh, an infant has just passed away. Mm-hmm. And, or a child just had, we just did CPR on a child. Mm-hmm. And we finish our involvement in that call and then the next call could be a domestic where parents are calling because their child won't stop playing Nintendo and they've called 911 for that Mm -hmm. so coming from just doing CPR to child to Mm -hmm. that type of call an officer may very well be short Mm -hmm. and not have the same level of understanding for whatever reason Mm -hmm this parent thought it was worthy of a 911 call and for mm-hmm. them this is a crisis mm-hmm. um, and that's I think where the challenge for many officers is just taking that step back and realizing okay this is your crisis mm-hmm. let's help you fix it mm-hmm. um, but when you're doing that day after day after day call after call after call mm-hmm. um, we are human and sometimes we can be short and should Mm -hmm. we no Mm -hmm. no we we should do better and we can do better but I think every officer that I've ever had the privilege of working with uh internally within the CPS and externally with other jurisdictions Mm -hmm. uh I'm very thankful to say that they were hired for the right reasons at the core they do have our values Mm -hmm. and our intentions are good Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and again that 
I don't want to be kind of glorified for sharing my story because I know I'm just one of hundreds in, in our service alone mm-hmm. that uh, treat people the way we would want them to and as somebody's eaten. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, I think we all need to learn to press pause a little bit and take a step back just in our everyday, day-to-day interactions with people in general, like across the board. And yes, with some positions and roles, there is a greater responsibility. Absolutely. And I, I understand that. And so even more so, but just, we still could all use more, just awareness, compassion, understanding, and just, you know what I mean? Just even self-reflection, you know, can I do better? Can I be better? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is, uh, I know you already know I plan on having you again later. We'll talk about some other stuff, but, uh, this was like, this was, this was amazing. Amazing. Um, yeah, I, I'm so grateful for your openness, your honesty, transparency, like your vulnerability, just really opening the door to a lot of things. I just, I love you, sister. I love you. Yeah. This has been another episode of Ordinary Courage. And uh, I'm so grateful to all you guys out there that are listening. Um, Thank you so much. Uh, It's, uh, this just really uh, has turned out to be so much more than I ever thought when I started. And it's such a privilege and such an honor to be, to have this platform. And I also just would like to uh, give a, I want to give a little shout out to, uh, I haven't done this yet, but I want to give a little shout out to uh, Sylvester here at uh, Simba Creative. Um, Sylvester has been with me, um, with Terminator for a few years now. And he was one of the first people that I went to um, when I was thinking about doing the podcast and realized I didn't have a clue <laughs> how to. I had I had bought a microphone <laughs> and a pair of headphones. <laughs> I'm like, do I record this on my phone? Like, what do I do? And just totally clued out. And I had tried to, you know, I bought this Adobe Audition, and I just. Oh my gosh, it was painful. Anyways, and so I just, you know, all of these episodes um, are being done. When I say the studio, it's it's Simba Creative. Um, you can find him on Facebook and Instagram. But he has, um, I we, this wouldn't even, this platform would not even exist right now if not for Sylvester and, and just his just his trust and his um, willingness to to work with me and to, and to just provide this service um, for us. And so I just really want to give a huge shout out to him. Thank you, Sylvester, for all of your, just your patience, your editing, um, just the space, 
uh, your your professionalism, your expertise, just your know-how when it comes to putting incredible episodes out. Um, yeah, you're amazing. And so uh, with that, this is uh, another episode of Ordinary Courage uh, with your host, Venetia Brielt. You can find us on Apple, uh, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and uh, thanks, you guys. If you got anything out of this, please share it with your friends, uh, pay it forward, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Take care. Take care.